Translation. Hi, my name is Mika. I am David's furry companion and you're listening to the Westchester Church Podcast. Now, rub my belly and let me chase squirrels. Also, I like to eat pizza. Well, we are officially at the midway point of our journey this year through the Sermon on the Mount. And I have heard it expressed before that the most important things that we as people learn in our lives was what we attended to have learned earliest on in our education. And as it pertains to us following after Jesus and learning just exactly what that looks like, it may have been one of the very first things that Jesus ever taught us in his life upon the earth. And yet, And yet just so many times we find ourselves going back to it and and learning it and seeing it with brand new eyes all over again, don't we? And we come to a verse here this morning. We come to the very end of chapter 5, and it's just one of those verses that a lot of Christians do not like. Where even the most devout of Christians, they come to this verse and they are just very baffled by it, very confused by it. Maybe even we ourselves in past times, maybe even as we sit here this morning, anytime that we come to this verse deep down, we wish that this never even appeared anywhere in Scripture, perhaps. And so we come to Matthew chapter 5, and the very last verse, we come to verse 48, and I mean, what does Jesus say here? Therefore, you are to be perfect. As your heavenly Father is perfect. (laughs) I mean, yeah, yeah, be perfect. Just as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's like, okay, Jesus, we were with you when you said, be poor in spirit. I mean, life and adversity kind of has a way of making us poor in spirit along the way. So we can do that one. You said, blessed are those who mourn, and I mean, I'm with you on that one because I can learn how to mourn when the time comes. You said, let your light shine, and you said, be gentle, and I mean, yes, yes, I mean, I can learn how to be gentle perhaps in time. And yet it seems like whenever we read through the Sermon on the Mount, we know that verse 48 is coming, don't we? And a lot of times we don't like to really stop on this one verse and to really learn what it means because we like to just move as quickly as we can past this verse as humanly possible. I mean, be perfect. I mean, it's like, Jesus, you realize that you're talking to me, right? You're talking to me when you say this. And yet in Scripture, we are reminded how it says in 1 John chapter 2, for instance, John says that the one who says he abides in him ought himself to also walk in the same manner in which Jesus walked. And I mean, we read verses like this and we might very well have the exact same response to it where, I mean, Jesus, you want me to walk in the same manner in which you walked. I mean, how did Jesus walk, brothers and sisters? It's not so much that Jesus walked down the streets of Palestine as that he walked on the Sea of Galilee, calmed the sea storm with just a few words, an entire universe created through he himself, through his word, never sinned a day in his life, even though he was tempted in all ways 
as we will ever be tempted. Greatest preacher who has ever lived literally raised the dead and it's saying that you've got to walk in the same manner in which Christ Jesus had also walked. And yet if we will look very carefully though at the Old Testament, we once again see that this really is nothing new as Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5. That we can look in the book of Leviticus and we can hear God say five different times some kind of delineation of be holy just as your heavenly Father is holy. And again, Jesus almost quotes those Leviticus passages. And yet Jesus uses a different word and we saw that word in our text, be, and then he says, perfect. Just as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I mean, in so many ways as Christians, I feel like we just don't know what to do with this verse. I've been around some people in my life in the realm of Christendom where their response to this passage and the others is, is that they believe that Jesus is commanding us to absolutely flawless perfectionism. I have met more than a few people in my short life who are just convinced that they are living a sinless life. Who go to certain passages in Scripture and, and they go to one example, for instance, where we see Jesus say, to a woman caught in the sin of adultery, he says, go and from now on sin no more. And a lot of people, what they walk away from that passage is that if you choose to follow after Jesus, from that point forth, you can never, ever sin ever again. I've heard others go to a passage in 1 John, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 9, where it says that no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. Notice, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. And I've heard people go to this passage and say, see, it says right there that if we actually sin, then that means that we are not actual Christians. And yet if we look very closely at that passage, though, really what is being discussed here is not religious perfectionism, but it's actually what we practice. It is about our lifestyle. First John opens up in chapter 1, whoever claims that they have no sin is a liar, it says there. So it is not absolute perfectionism, but, but a lot of people, that is what, what their takeaway is of these passages sometimes. And so anytime that a person in the church confesses sin that they have done, also mentioned in the book of First John, they like to shame people like this and say, you see, that means that you were never really a Christian before if you just sinned. Or if they're with a person in the church and they maybe lock their keys in the car on Sunday morning and they let a word come out of their mouth that they did not mean to actually say, that other person can say, see, that means that you are no longer a Christian. I mean, they get that literal with a text sometimes. And yet there is another extreme that I have observed many times over in the church, even more so, I would say, than perfectionism. And that is of this never-ending sense of guilt and of shame. A lot of times, as a result of, of having been around religious perfectionists before, 
Many others in the church live their entire lives, year after year after year, feeling like they just are not measuring up in comparison to other Christians. People in the church who have been made to feel like, oh my goodness, I have to be absolutely perfect. All of my thoughts have to be flawlessly perfect. I even have to dress perfectly and look perfectly. I've got to be absolutely perfect one kajillion percent of the time. Because if I'm not, then I'm not a real Christian. It's people who always keep it in the back of their, their heads and their minds that as soon as I make even the smallest, most minute mistake, then I'm no longer a Christian and I'm going straight to hell. And I mean, the world is full and the church is inundated with, with so many people whose, whose mental concept of the Christian life, as they try to live for Jesus, in so many ways it resembles a man who is walking across the Grand Canyon on a tightrope with no safety net. And I mean, the Christian life to a lot of people is a life of fear and a paranoia that, that as soon as I make one small mistake, one false step, I'm going to, to go plummeting to my spiritual death. For others that I've encountered in the church, what the Christian life had been to them might have been something like walking on foot all the way from where we're sitting, all the way to Anchorage, Alaska. And yet they have been told that, that scattered all throughout the road are millions and millions of landmines. And at any moment, you don't know that the very next step that you take might be your last. And all of this is going to come exploding and blowing up in your face. I've met other Christians where the Christian life was, they reminded me in so many ways of a sixth grade student. And his class has just had a, a math test. And his best friend sitting next to him got an 83% on the test, and he's ecstatic because he studied as hard as he possibly could on this test, and he got a passing grade on the score, and he's so happy. And yet this other kid got a 97%. And yet this kid is crying. His hands are shaking. I mean, he's got a knot in his stomach because he knows that the minute that he goes home and he shows his dad what he got on that math test, that he's going to be beaten one inch away from his life because he's living in this environment of absolutely flawless perfectionism. Because in that house, anything other than a 100% A++++++ is simply failure and it's unacceptable. And I can't tell you how many Christians I have met who had been handed a Jesus or, or handed a Christianity just like that. That I've got to be perfect. And so you see, really what the problem is with religious perfectionism is that we are not perfect, are we? I mean, we are the antithesis of perfection. As the scripture says, we all sin and have fallen short of the glory of God. We, we are going to stumble and fall over and over again, no matter how hard we try. We could go back to just last week, if not just this morning, and already we have stumbled in some way, shape, or form without intending to. 
And yet we are in very good company this morning, though. Because we look, I mean, it doesn't matter who you look at. If their name is something other than Jesus Christ, they were just like us. I think about Abraham. I mean, he is immortalized in the, can, or in the annals of history as the father of the faithful. And yet we can go back to certain instances in Abraham's life where, where we find Abraham telling lies. Where we find God making a promise to, to him and his wife and they are, are laughing hysterically because they don't think God is going to keep his word. I think about Moses. I mean, when we look at Moses, I mean, Moses killed a guy in Egypt once. And of all people, as, as incredible of a shepherd as he was to, to Israel, all those years in the wilderness and beyond, we find Moses not being allowed to actually enter into the promised land because he fell short, because he stumbled flat on his face sometimes. Earlier on in this series, we looked at David, the king of Israel, I mean, of all of our heroes in the faith, who fell short more grotesquely than King David did? I mean, here's a guy who is a womanizer, the worst dad who has ever lived, perhaps, who was a spiritual role model, at least, a man who was guilty of bloodshed and of orchestrating murder and just so many other things. Even King Solomon, in those last several years of his life, he, he replaces God with all of these women and he replaces God with, with all of these false gods. And we find even the most wisest man other than Jesus bowing down and sacrificing his own sons in the worship of Chemosh and Moloch, these, these Ammonite gods. All of these guys could not pull off such perfectionism. But God is expecting a 35-year-old minister to pull it off? God is expecting you to be flawlessly perfect in the way that you live? It's not perfectionism that he's calling us to. Maybe it would help us if we were to look at this through the lens of sports, perhaps. Now, if the object of the game of golf was that, listen, Here's how you play golf. Every time that you swing that club, you've got to hit a hole in one. I mean, literally, whoosh, hole in one, whoosh, hole in one, one hand, whoosh, hole in one, backwards, whoosh, hole in one. But unless you knock in a hole in one every single time that you swing that club, then you're not a golf player. Then you are a failure. I mean, who would want to take up golf if that was the object of the game? It's also true in the world of baseball. It doesn't matter who the greatest baseball player has been, if it's Babe Ruth or Barry Bonds or Hank Aaron, nobody has ever batted 1,000 in the major leagues. In fact, if you bat even 250 in the major leagues, that is considered above average. If you could somehow bat 300, 320, 350, 360, that, that is going to make you an all-star. If you bat 400 or above, you are, you are in so many ways not even human. You are so good. You see, what this means is that even the very greatest who have ever played, 60, if not 70, maybe 80% of the time, 
They're whiffing. They are striking out. They are failing before everybody's eyes. And yet, that does not mean that they are not very good at the game of baseball. How are we... I mean, how ridiculous would it be if you were buying a brand new car, perhaps? And, I mean, this car it has just rolled off the assembly line in Michigan. It is sparkling in the sun. It doesn't have one single scratch on it. It's got that brand new car smell that we love so much. And yet, how crazy would it be if that car dealership had said that, listen, before you sign those papers, before we can let you take this car off of our lot, you have to agree that you're going to return this car 45 years from now, still without any scratches. It still has to look as perfectly and smell as perfectly as it does right now. I mean, that would be impossible to do. And that's because life is very messy. And it is inevitable. It's just a matter of time before we take that car through a mud puddle accidentally. We're going to hit a pothole. We're going to get rear-ended in a grocery store parking lot. We're going to go to McDonald's and we're going to be eating French fries. We're going to drop maybe two or three of those, those fries in the middle of the seat or in the console. I mean, life gets very messy. It's not flawless perfection that Jesus is inviting us to. I mean, we are gloriously imperfect people. And I love a couple of quotes that I read by some writers. One, his name is Matt Holliday, and he says that, that perfectionism rarely ever produces perfection or satisfaction. All that it ever seems to produce is only disappointment. I also like how another writer, Annie Lamott, says it, where she says that perfectionism is the voice of the oppressor. And I just find that so eloquently true about perfectionism is that it is the voice of the it is the voice of the oppressor. I mean, have you ever been around anybody at work or especially in the church where to be in this person's presence you were constantly made to feel as if everything that you did was wrong. That everything that you had said was wrong and Chances are you were in the presence of a, a perfectionist. And yet I have learned in time that my, I mean, I really only have just, just one area of, of true expertise. And it's not writing. And it most certainly is not preaching. But my only area of expertise is screwing up and realizing just how imperfect, how mortal of a person that I really am. And yet the funny thing is, is that our world understands that you can't be flawlessly perfect all the time. Just one year ago, there was a song that was at the top of the charts, playing across many of the airwaves in this country. And it is a song about the illusion of fame how it's not what it appears to be, but, but in so many ways, it reminds me all too much of the life of a minister in a lot of churches. And it's by a prophet who also goes by the name of Eminem. And I just want to read a couple of the lyrics of the song where it says, Why are expectations so high? Is it the bar I set, my arms I stretch, but I can't reach? A far cry from it, or it's in my grasp, but as soon as I grab, squeeze? 
I lose my grip and into the dark I plummet. And then the chorus line says, I walk on water, but I am not Jesus. I walk on water, but only when it freezes. Because I'm only human just like you. I've been making my mistakes. Oh, if you only knew. You really should not believe in me the way that you do because I am terrified of letting you down. And then at the very end of the song, he says that if I walked on water, that I would drown. And I mean, in so many ways, that is exactly how I felt as a minister elsewhere in my life as a minister. I mean, Jesus Christ himself could have come walking through that door with a t-shirt that said, Hi, I am Jesus Christ. And it would not have been enough for those people. I mean, so often it is in the least expected places where we find connections to the truth. I mean, say what you will about Marshall Mathers, but even Eminem understands that he cannot be flawlessly perfect all the time as an entertainer. And yet I wonder if we Christians understand that we cannot always be perfect little Christians 24-7. And we know from the book of James that if you broke even one of those laws in the most minute way that you were guilty of breaking every single one of those laws. And yet as Jesus says, be perfect just as your Father is perfect, it's like Jesus I thought that your new covenant was going to be so much better than the old covenant. Your new covenant in the kingdom of heaven is not supposed to be even harder, even more impossible than the law of Moses had been to observe. And yet again, we see that it's not perfectionism that Jesus is inviting us to. I mean, when absolute perfectionism is the goal, we will find ourselves perpetually disillusioned with the Christian life, perpetually disappointed, and perpetually exhausted as we attempt to live this thing called the Christian life. This is not what Jesus gave his life for. Neither should it be what we give our lives to ourselves. And I just can't tell you how much calmer I am waking up on Sunday mornings now as opposed to many years ago when I used to wake up thinking that, that I've got to preach the perfect sermon this morning. I've got to preach the greatest sermon that mortal ears have ever heard, thinking that every single word has to be perfect and that I've got to be a perfect minister and a perfect person. But rather, I woke up this morning and I've been waking up lately for the past couple of years realizing at last that I mean, the greatest minister who ever lived has already been here. The greatest sermon ever preached has already been delivered. We're spending a year looking at it. I don't have to be a perfect anything. But rather, as a minister, all I have to do this morning is jump up there, brag about Jesus, love everybody who I'm speaking to, and teach the truth in love. I mean, that's it. That's all I have to do. And I just can't tell you how calming that is knowing that Jesus is perfect. It's not perfectionism that Jesus is calling us to here. 
And it left the Apostle Paul saying that, that I mean, the things that I want to do righteously and in Jesus' name and in the Spirit, so often those are the things that I am not doing. And yet the things in the flesh that I do not want to do, that is what I keep doing over and over and over again. And it leaves him wringing his hands saying, Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Is it going to be religious perfectionism? Is it going to be my own religious performance? He says, it's none of those things. But rather what he says is, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so if it's not religious perfectionism Jesus is calling us to, then it just begs the question, I mean, then what is it that Jesus is inviting us to as he says that you must be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect? Well, as we learn many times, we will see many of these statements that we don't understand in new light when we look at the original language. Teleoi is the word that Jesus uses as he says, be perfect. And here's what the meaning of this word is that Jesus uses. Now, it can mean perfect, but how much more do we understand this verse if we were to read it in this way? Therefore, you are to be mature, just as your Heavenly Father is mature. Therefore, you are to be complete, just as your Father in Heaven is complete. You are to be full-grown adults, in the way that you spiritually live in my footsteps. You are to be of those who are of age, that you are to grow in your mental and in your moral character as followers and as apprentices of mine. I mean, how much more in our grasp is this suddenly? I mean, perfect, we can never be perfect as we, we see that with our American eyes, but, but mature. Now, we can be mature. We can be complete as followers of Jesus. It's, Jesus is not commanding us to never sin. But rather what he's saying to us is that as you live in my name, as you seek and as you endeavor to bring my kingdom of heaven down into this earth in the way that you're conducting yourselves, in the way that you are loving, be spiritually mature in the way that you love. Be mature, be complete in the way in which you live in my name. And again, I think about the Apostle Paul as, as he writes to the church at Corinth. He says, brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants. But in your thinking, be, and then he uses this, this exact same word Jesus uses, be mature. Be complete as you follow in the footsteps of Christ. And likewise, he also writes to the church at Colossae and he says, we proclaim Jesus admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man. And then notice he uses the word again, complete. That the object of Paul's ministry was to present each man and each woman in the church as complete, as mature, a full age, spiritually in Jesus Christ. And in so many ways, this should be the reason why we come here in part, so that we can help one another become mature and more complete as we follow in the footsteps of Christ. 
You see, what Jesus really is saying here, and, and in fact, again, always it helps us looking at what the context is. And the context for, it seems so long in this series now, I mean, I'm, I'm sounding like, like a broken record here, but what the context is, it still goes back to chapter 5 and in verse 16. Or rather in verse 20, where Jesus says, For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so what the context of be perfect, therefore, as your Heavenly Father is perfect, is departing a life of self-righteousness. But also, also what the context of this is, it goes back to last week. As Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be called sons of your Father who is in heaven. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that if you only love those who love you, but you hate those who do not love you, that is spiritual immaturity. That if, if you only greet those who you like the most, but you disregard other people, that is spiritually incomplete. And yet, if you can be one of these rare souls in this earth, who, eat, who loves indiscriminately, who loves everybody, who loves even your worst enemy in this world, that is spiritual maturity. That is spiritual completeness. This is how a full-grown Christian is to conduct themselves in this world. And really, in that sense, the entirety of chapter 5 is the context because this applies to everything that he said up to this point. That if you respond with hostility and with anger, that is spiritual immaturity. But if you learn to live with meekness and with gentleness in your soul, that is spiritual maturity. If you respond to people who are mistreating you because you are, are living a life for Jesus, that is living a life of spiritual immaturity. And yet if you leap for joy and if you love those who persecute you, that is spiritual maturity and spiritual completeness. When Jesus says, be perfect... This is the exact same word that we find him using with the rich young ruler. Where he says, but one thing that you lack. Go and sell all of your possessions. If you want to be complete, sell your possessions. Give it to the poor and then come and follow after me. You see, his possessions was where he was especially spiritually immature. What are our areas of spiritual immaturity? Well, our, our response to this message is, I mean, it sounds very easy, but it's not easy. But my charge to you as well as to me myself this morning is this. Let go of perfectionism. Again, I know that sounds all too easy, and it's not easy, is it? But for all of us who are trying so hard to be perfect and to be flawless, however it looks like for us, let go of that perfectionism. God is not expecting you to bat a thousand. He's not expecting us to hit a hole in one every single time that we swing the club. He just is calling us to a life of spiritual maturity. I mean, I would in so many ways rather be 
like Simon Peter, like the Apostle Peter. I mean, say what you will about his shortcomings and his imperfections. Every time that he stepped to the plate for Jesus Christ, he was swinging for the cheap seats. And yet, 85% of the time, he whiffed. He fell flat on his face, striking out. And yet, that other 15% of the time that he did good and that he actually resembled Jesus, he changed this world forever. And so can we. And so will we. In fact, Peter did seemingly the impossible. We cannot walk on water, but, but Peter actually, literally, physically walked on water. And he learned that the way that you walk on water in this life, either physically or in our case spiritually, is when our eyes are fixed and are gazed upon the author and the perfecter of the faith. Where are you spiritually immature this morning? We can almost hear Jesus asking us, rich young rulers, but one thing you lack, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be complete, if you want to be of age spiritually and complete, you've got to change the way that you look at black people. You've got to change the way that you look at white people. People who you don't love or agree with. Or maybe it's you have got to change the way that you forgive people. You've got unforgiveness in your heart. Whatever it is, wherever we are spiritually immature, wherever we are lacking in the way of Jesus, let go of perfectionism. And let us spur one another on in, in becoming complete becoming mature sons and daughters of the living God.